The football season is reaching its conclusion and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Fulham left-back Joe Bryan, the man whose goals sealed their place in the Premier League. Joe will take us inside the Fulham dressing room at Wembley, his career ambitions, what he has learned as a player and a person as he prepares for a return to the top flight and so much more. It really is a must listen. Also ahead of what could be a defining week for Manchester City, the Athletic Sam Lee assesses their Champions League chances, transfer business and the future of Pep Guardiola. And our Italian football writer James Horncastle is here to discuss an eventful week for Juventus, who in the wake of their European exit have replaced their manager with a former player who has no experience in the dugout. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around, covering you until the end of the season. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. And don't forget about my new weekly YouTube Q&A show, Ask Ornstein, answering the very best questions provided by subscribers to The Athletic. Head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel to watch the latest video and don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more superb podcast content. First up, I'm delighted to be joined by Fulham left-back Joe Bryan, the man whose two goals at Wembley in the Championship playoff final, which is often described as the richest game in football, sealed his club's place in the Premier League for next season. Joe, thank you very much for your time. And I've got so much to ask you about, but I want to begin by throwing things back to Wembley. And I know you're quite a self-depreciating person and you won't sort of <laughs> like this question, but your, your two goals took... Fulham into the Premier League. They won the match that all eyes in football were watching. We hear so much about that match. Your goals won that match. Have you had a bit of time now to sort of sit back and reflect? It's been a bit crazy, to be honest. I don't think my phone's just about stopped. I think we're now sitting at, what, five days afterwards? And yeah, yeah. it's just about stopped. I think given there's no fans, it was a bit of a strange feeling. And I didn't mm. really realise until afterwards. And then I scrolled through social media and obviously the whole local derby thing, I think was probably the bigger factor in it. The mm. fact that Brentford and Fulham have had that, that rivalry for a long time. And it's a horrible cliche, but that's what it's what football's about, isn't it? Those memories and those, those moments. But yeah. being a left back... They probably come few and far between. <laughs> Often with those playoff finals, and I can f think back to so many over the years, going back to Charlton at Wembley with Clive Mendonca, Dean Windass for Hull City, Bobby Zamora, QPR. Oh, I watched that one. Just Dean a Windass few one. off Yeah, just a few <laughs> off the top of my head. You kind of remember it largely for the celebration and the fans and, and that wasn't the case this time round. But it was really emotional for you guys. Like I remember Scott Parker's interview on the pitch, he was sort of welling up about the toll it's taken in his first sort of season, first sort of period as a manager on his family and the commitments, the sacrifices, and, and you all feel that as players afterwards. Could you take our listeners inside the dressing room after? What sort of conversations took place? What emotions were present? So it's, it's an interesting one. I think given the 
sort of current global situation, the fact that we've we've basically been isolated as a team for the last three weeks, training three weeks, three months, training mm. together, um, playing together, no fans, like really, really just it's just us. Um, we've come to, we've come together massively as a team. So after the game, it was just firstly one of relief because we felt there was huge pressure on us to to bounce back straight away. Um, but like just it was just happiness and but yeah. it's it's that feeling of of like you just relax and say oh we've done it like all the like emotion just comes out of you and you feel completely drained so everyone's just sat around just smiling laughing the manager made a little speech um there was a few alcoholic drinks drunk and yeah <laughs> we just like it was just it was just a, a really a really good sort of team team experience do you actually talk about guys we, we're going to the big time this is it is it the most thrilling thing as a footballer in in that situation and do you actually talk about it amongst yourselves in the lead up to the game around the training ground and in training there was never any doubt in our heads that we were going to win that match players were walking around the training ground would come up to each other and go you know we're going to win you know we're going to do it we will make it to the premier league we will bounce back everyone was sure in their head that we weren't going to lose there was no way we were going to lose like when we came in after the game it was more like, like i said it was just like a relief it was like yeah we, we've done exactly what we set out to do we might have done it the hardest way possible mm -hmm. but we we know that, that this club deserves to be playing in in the Premier League again, and we're looking forward to to testing ourselves against against those those top players again. Because like we've got we've obviously had half the squads had a taste of it, but we've yeah. we've we've not achieved or, or, or we failed really. Well, not really. We did just fail. We failed mm. in the Premier League the last time around, but there's experience within the squad and there's some fresh young hungry players you mentioned the manager's speech there can you you remember anything he actually said that really resonated with you either before or after the match yeah he did a speech again about memories it was quite cheesy to be fair he won't mind me saying, he <laughs> saying that but no he, he just said look we all go to the same place at the end of our lives but what you remember is the things that happened, your memories. It doesn't matter how many fancy cars, watches, how much money you've made. You remember the things in life, the things like getting promoted after a 367-day season. You remember sort of your first child. You remember getting married. Those are the things that are important in life. So make sure that you go out and make some memories, good ones. And then what did you do after the match? Celebrate a little bit. Nothing too crazy. It's tough given the... The, the fact that not many places are open and then we had a few drinks the next day yeah it wasn't I think we've got to the stage now where we've been playing for so long everyone's a bit yeah. sick of the sight of one another so <laughs> <laughs> to have two and a half weeks off I'll, I'll, I'll not be seeing anyone from the training ground whatsoever the funny ones for me are like the, the messages you get on Instagram and Twitter where <laughs> On Instagram, if someone's, um, someone messages you, you can see, obviously, you can see the previous messages you've, they've sent you. Mm. And they're sending you these messages. Oh, it's brilliant. Well done. What a player. Two goals. And then you see six months ago, they sent you a message saying, you are crap. You can't <laughs> defend <laughs> all this. And it just makes Classic. you realize the fickle nature of football. But it's just funny. And like it's one of those, isn't it, where you, when you don't play very well, you, you get deserved criticism. But when you play well, it's, it's nice to beat to have a pat on the back and told well done. Was there a come down after a victory of such magnitude and so long spent with the same people? Do you then wake up a couple of days <laughs> later and feel empty or is, that, is, it, is it actually quite nice? I was absolutely drained, just sort of mm. physically and emotionally. I was trying to, I think it was 
So when was the game? Was the game Tuesday night? I think it was Friday morning. I was trying to FaceTime my sister. She's um she lives in Ohio, so time difference wise, it's tough to to get a good FaceTime slot. Maybe it was late at night. Yeah, it was late at night. It was like ten thirty, eleven o'clock, and I just could not concentrate. Couldn't <laughs> couldn't converse with her for more than about thirty mm. seconds without just kind of going soft focus and zoning out. It was completely drained and then i've sort of slept for the best part of two days and i'm back to normal now in terms of the actual restart fulham will have a a really quick turnaround many of Mm -hmm. your contemporaries at other clubs were already in beach resorts and and partying around around the world and chilling out unwinding and and getting their holidays in what are you guys doing now because it's such a rapid turnaround i'm not doing anything to be honest i won't be going away i'm not seeing my family for the best part of four or five months so it's just nice to spend a little bit of time with my niece who's sort of seven months old i've missed half her life so far yeah um and see just see my family two weeks three weeks off you start to lose your fitness after about 10 days two weeks so unfortunately i'll probably have to do some off-season running yeah but you know all about that from lockdown because (laughs) you and strava were uh, best friends during that period I don't know if you've looked up in the dictionary, but the term best friend means you actually like the app. (laughs) But I was, (laughs) I hated it. I can't stand, to be honest, I can't stand it. If you tell me to sort of run with no, with no goal in mind, it's, it's one of the most mind numbing experiences Mm. possible. (laughs) <laughs> Needs must, and um, and the Premier League season isn't that far away. You, you mentioned the word failure. Yeah, relegation is failure mm-hmm. of sorts, and so you're going to get another bite at the cherry now. What sort yeah. of lessons do you think you personally and as a collective team and club will have learned from the last Premier League campaign that must that must be implemented if you're going to have a better better time of it this time? I think the main thing is. The, the the team spirit honestly the team spirit and the determination I don't think we had that last time there was none of that sort of we will not lose mentality which any fans that have watched a lot of our games this season will have seen slowly 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 sort of coming into the team and that comes from the manager the the he's sort of bringing in this mentality of we will not lose if we're not going to win we will not lose the amount of times this season that we ground out one like rubbish rubbish one nil wins where we probably didn't even deserve it but i think that's that's the the makeup of a successful team and it will trans it does translate into the 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 top league you see with sort of teams like sheffield united their team spirit and their fitness and that's kind of thing is is sort of a majority of the reason they're so successful obviously they've got brilliant technical players i think you've seen the managers come out in the in the press or I don't know if it was Tony Khan the last week that we've got the core of a very good squad now a very young very hungry good squad with good team spirit good morals good values and it's, it's about adding to that with real quality and making sure we don't lose what's what's made us successful this year which is just an attitude of we aren't going to lose we're going to do everything in our power and leave everything on the pitch I think fans saw that this year we we might fail, we might come up short sometimes, but we're a team now that will put everything into it, absolutely everything, whereas before, maybe we weren't. Speaking candidly, when I was messaging people after the playoff win, they said it was an amazing achievement by Scott Parker and the players because Fulham aren't ready for it yet. They're not quite ready for the Premier League. They, they've kind of surprised a few people, championship observers, that they've managed to 
get this promotion. I like that. Everyone told us we couldn't beat Brentford, remember that? <laughs> exactly. Is that underdog spirit something you can play off? But in a sort of real sense, do you need to make some significant additions to the squad as well as that attitude? The manager is in his playing career, he was one of those players that people probably underestimated, but he he always got the job done and he's always and if he couldn't get the job done, he'd leave everything there and try and do it and give everything to do the job. And you can see that now translating into the team that he's putting out. It takes time. It takes time to build a, re- a good, successful team. And if people are saying that we maybe aren't ready for it, it just means that we've got to develop quicker and and make sure that we, we, we are ready. What do you think about your game? So many people have said to me, and I looked at the comments below the interview that you did with The Athletic during lockdown, and absolutely loving you from an an attacking perspective and some said but he's got to improve on his defending what do you and I'm sure you're your harshest critic feel that you need to improve to be a a stable um, Premier League player next season since we sort of the restart I really really sort of tried to to make sure I was just that little bit more solid that little bit more aware of my positioning and and sort of concentration and yeah whilst maybe sacrificing some of the kind of gung-ho let's get to the byline and smash a cross across the box but I'll know their wing is breaking and I'm 45 yards out of position probably that's not so necessary I think (laughs) we've got really really talented attacking players so we're in a position now where I can put sole focus on my positioning locking out counter-attacks that kind of real real defensive stuff that I'm learning slowly I grew up being a winger and a wing back yeah. so it's taken me a while I know I'm almost 27 but I've learned slowly to to really relish that that kind of that challenge as opposed to oh I'm a defender I've got 438 assists but <laughs> We also conceded 200 goals. Well, I don't think the Fulham fans will want you to rein in the attacking too much, given what they saw at <laughs> Wembley. And, and that was quite yeah. exceptional for a left-back. <laughs> but you, you say you need to learn and work on some of the defensive side. H- how do you actually do that at Fulham? Do you do you go through videos? Do you work with a specialist coach? Do you work with Scott? Do you do, you do extracurricular stuff? How does it actually happen? It's a lot of it's a lot of training pitch stuff, video stuff, a lot of clips of, of top teams in Europe doing it, and I've said it in interviews, interviews before the, the the level of detail that the coaches in um, the managers setup go to with everything is is second to none. It's it's an actual real joy to be a part of, it, even down to the thing into things of sort of you haven't covered enough sprint distance this week to make sure you're ready for the game, so we're going to do a little bit extra. Um, tiny things like that nutrition sort of like positional play tactical awareness set pieces everything you saw with the free kick goal it had been mentioned four or five times by by Betts mentioned it the um the second keeper yeah um like cyrus cyrus was screaming at me from the bench i was like lads just be quiet i don't i know what i'm doing Um, (laughs) you're gonna give it away yeah like little things like that like to, to point out that Actually, he's probably he might be a foot too far to his left on crosses, which means he can t- he comes and claims a lot. And but there's one time he's going to get caught out. It's that level of detail that is is really sort of top top quality and yeah, really a joy to be a part of. Your future is spoken about quite a lot because left backs are at a bit of a premium quality ones, especially. I was only 
researching before this interview and, and Leicester City was was mentioned because uh, they may lose Ben Chilwell, Chelsea, Manchester mm-hmm. City linked and then your name comes up as the first choice replacement. You almost joined Aston Villa be- before joining Fulham. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Do, do you? I mean, you're under a long contract, but do you have ambitions yeah. to, to go on and go elsewhere or, or are you settled at Fulham and, and that's where you f- feel your future lies? As a footballer, you are a commodity. So clubs hold no loyalty to you if things start going wrong. So I've never hidden behind the fact that if a challenge comes along that I feel is, is too, too big to turn down, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no, but I'm still looking forward to testing myself in the Premier League with Fulham. It's, it's going to be a a good season and one that we've worked really hard to, to achieve and one that we want to, um, we want to make sure we do well in. I'm fascinated by that word commodity because let's face it, if we strip the romance to one side, that, <laughs> that's the truth. That's the reality. We're numbers. And we're now in a transfer window. So your name, everybody's name pretty much is linked with moves, new contracts, um, being on lists. I always find that a bit strange. You're lists. number one, two, three, four, five for this club. You're, and I'm this... number five. What do you mean? Four people <laughs> exactly. you prefer and you ended up with me. <laughs> exactly. And like, it's, it, it must be so head spinning to almost feel like you're in a game, uh, a football uh, num- a game, yeah, numbers game, like a video yeah. console game. And so yeah. what's this period like? And especially now that this is a completely different Window. It's going to go on until October when the, the Premier League season is starting in September. Do you just have to literally, the cliche, just focus on, on your job? But there's there's agents and there's newspapers and there's things like this. Like It must be mentally very challenging. So I'm very lucky. I've had an agent since I was 17 or 18 that mm-hmm. I fully trust and I can sort of leave to get on with it and I know he'll get me the best deal possible in any any situation. So I'm lucky in that I am fully trusting of him and what yeah. he'll do and I can <laughs> fully focus on football, that hor- horrible cliche. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, it's a very, uh, some players, some players, I think, the first few times it happens when you're 19, 20, 21, if you're doing the right things and your name's suddenly out there, oh, this club wants you, it can be a little bit unsettling. But if people are talking about you, what I've learned is that that's probably a good thing. You're probably doing something right if people are talking about you. I'm just lucky, like I said, that I, I trust the people around me, my advisors, my family, that they'll they'll advise me and and sort of look after everything else that goes on and allow me to focus on trying to kick people and trying to kick a football. Are you one of these players who is so obsessed with football that you're saying, (laughs) I want to represent my country, I want to become one of the best in the world, I want to play for one of the biggest clubs, whether that's in England or in Spain or Italy or something like that? Or are you just trying to become the best at what you are and you're a more rounded person? And we'll speak about some of that in a minute. I wouldn't say I'm completely and utterly obsessed with football and everything that comes with it. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I would love to represent my country. I'd love to play for the best clubs in the world. But at the same time, I'm realistic. I'm 26, almost 27. I will just try as hard as I can to be the best player I can. But my view is that being the best player I can comes with also trying to be a better person so a lot of things off the pitch that you can do to improve yourself they translate onto the pitch 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I would urge anyone listening to this to go to The Athletic and read an interview you did with my colleague Jack Pitbrook in June about your interests off the field. So many people would have learned from that. And again, I looked in the comments below and people took great value from it. On that, I just wanted to start with the first theme of that piece, mm-hmm. and it's your reading habits. Yeah. Have have you moved on to any new books recently that, that you didn't talk about in that interview? And if so, why did you pick the book that you're on now, or do you not have time at the moment? I, to be honest, the last couple of weeks, I've not really read much, but I'm reading one called The Psychopath Test, which it's less, less of a, um, less of a sort of educational book, but it's just quite interesting, to be honest, to it's t- talking about the makeup of psychopaths and and wh- why a lot of the sort of structures that we have in place are actually designed by people that have psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies because they're often highly successful. It's just one of those things, like we like culturally, there just seems to be this: we finish university or we finish school, and you come out at twenty-one or twenty-two, and that seems to be you. There's no sort of educational learning culture. People sort of, they have the same views at 22 that they do at 40 or 50. Yeah. And there's so, there's so, there's so much information out there available to us to, to educate. And a lot of the issues and p- problems people have in their lives can be resolved by reading a couple of books and actually really looking at yourself and going, you know what, that resonates with me. I'm just going to try that. I'm just going to try this. I'm going to try writing down three or four things that I'm grateful for, for in the morning and seeing if that changes my life. Oh, it doesn't change. I think that's rubbish. All right, well, I tried it. I can tick that one off the list. That's that's the kind of thing for me, rather than just floating through and flowing through and just not ever really changing. I just think that's sort of eternally boring. Yeah, and maybe the fast-paced nature of life and social media and seemingly having ever more commitments than ever before has eliminated that in a lot of people but certainly during lockdown we didn't really have that pace and so hopefully it allowed people to reflect and sort of broaden um in a way that you've sort of explained there i I need to dig into the psychopath test myself um (laughs) and and see see what that makes me think i I certainly noticed some things when you were talking about anxiety and it's almost a bit of a taboo word it sounds quite a vicious word but it scares people that actual word, I don't know if it's the X or, or just the way it sounds, it, 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 but it's actually um, the way you explain it really eloquently in, in the interview with Jack. I think the most pertinent thing I remember from that was your experience in a Colombian barber shop, which was the sort of thing that we would go about every day, but many won't have heard that. So maybe just explain it to us now. First of all, I think it's important for people to realise that these things that I talk about are a sort of it's almost like a spectrum. Some mm. people have them really badly. Some people suffer with them very, very mildly and they know how to deal with them and some people don't know how to deal with them. So it's not like it's not like you have it or you don't. Like there'll be certain, certain, certain social situations where some people have anxiety. Like I know, I know people that get really, really sort of worked up and nervous when they have to like order food at a restaurant or ring up, <laughs> ring up a hairdresser and book a hair, haircut. That's the kind of thing that I think is important for people to realize is completely normal. It's like completely normal and it's not, it's not a bad thing or embarrassing or, or st- st- something like that. But mine was, I've just, I was in, um, a barber shop, my lo- my local barber, where I go every where I go every, for every hair haircut. And yeah, I just sat there and 
they're all chattering away in Spanish and I understand a tiny bit of Spanish. So I couldn't, I can kind of get the odd word. And when you can get the odd word, you start making sentences in your head and trying to put them into sentences. And suddenly I was like, Oh, hang on. Are they talking about me? What are they talking about? Why are they all laughing? That kind of thing. And you just sort of start overthinking it and you get all hot and start feeling sick and you just, yeah, I just started to have a bit of a sort of anxiety attack. And that was when I sort of really stepped back and was like, right, there's, there's something, there's something not quite right here. Let's, let's speak to a couple of people and let's try and sort out and see what it is. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you give a similar example at the dinner table before, um, uh, uh, I don't know if it was before a match or when you were in an away game or something. Yeah. It was a Friday night before a game. And that was a relatable experience. So are you seen as different in the dressing room? I don't really know if I'm seen as different. Maybe I am, but I've always, I've always sort of, yeah, not really been bothered by it. Good. I'm, it's, I'm sort of accepting of who everyone else is. So if you don't want to accept me for me, then fair enough. It's not my problem, is it? Well, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I mean, even more so now when you, you're going to go up into the Premier League and be uh, one of 20 clubs, um, one of 20, 25 man squads and all the focus. You've been there before, so you know the media attention is far greater everything you do compared to the EFL is scrutinized to a greater degree. And so when you talk about mental health, I saw a couple of comments below the piece that almost said, oh, Didums, you know, Premier League footballer. It it, it seems that a lot of people still struggle to understand how uh, people in your position are normal and could suffer despite when they're earning so much money and have so many privileges and are living the so-called dream. But it's not always the dream. Those kind of comments are... They don't really bother me. It's an education process for people. When people haven't been exposed to something or haven't had their way of thinking questioned, then you can't really judge someone for the way they think. If they've been brought up in, a, in an environment where that's the way you think, it's not their fault. But it's our duty to educate people and, and say that, look, these these things affect you, whether you're sort of black, white, gay, straight, rich, poor, that man or woman like that's that's the sort of that's the way we have to think it's not it's not a sort of situation where i'll be like oh everyone's being mean to me because there's extra media attention and and sort of we're in the premier league now and i need i need to shut up because there's now 200 people commenting on a story about it rather than rather than two i'll sort of wrap it up with a last but by no means least important issue, probably the most important issue given the climate we're in at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. Race and racism. It's something that you've said that you want to learn more about, especially Mm -hmm. around, for instance, the Edward Colston statue in the city that you come from, your education, missing certain things that you felt were essential. I feel in in the last few months, I've been able to open up in a different way, which is good um, because people are talking about it more. Yet we're still seeing more incidents. We had the sort of um, controversy at the BBC just in the last week over the use of the N-word. I've had endless discussions with people over the use of the Y-word. We -hmm. seem in a very difficult, delicate moment, sometimes walking on eggshells, sometimes being liberated, but the country feels on edge a little bit when it comes to race and racism. The world, not just the country. Well, the beauty of it at the moment, I think, is that... It, there's been this kind of there's been this shift and now it's completely 
completely acceptable to have the difficult, sometimes uncomfortable conversations with your friends that might come from a different, a different background. That's, that's what I love. We we sit around at training sometimes and talk about it and you just sort of, yeah, it's, it's brilliant to kind of open up and just say like, look, this is, this is, well, this is the way that I've been educated. Like, is this wrong? Like I've never seen, like I've been brought up in this white privilege background. Like I'm, I won't hide behind that. And then one of the lads at Fulham might say, well, this is my experience of institutionalized racism. And yeah. I'm like, wow, I would never, I would never have thought of that. I would never, that wouldn't even sort of come through my thought process because of the way I've been brought up. And I just think it's, it's good that we've made that step that we can now have the uncomfortable conversations and start and start educating one another. Whereas before, I'm sure you've had conversations in the last couple of months that you wouldn't have had, yeah. hadn't had some of the things not happen that some of the awful things, sorry, that have happened had, had not happened. So it's, it's obviously nothing's going to be fixed overnight, but I just think the small steps that people are taking and now are really sort of positive and, yeah, it's really good to see. Joe Bryan, we could speak for absolutely hours. <laughs> um, uh, because of you, I'm going to be, a, and I'm an impartial journalist, but I'm going to be looking out for Fulham or wherever you're playing um, next season. Uh, I'm not trying to link you with a move away, but thank you for your time. And listen, good luck. You've been a, a star of the last couple of weeks and I'm sure you're going to be a star um, in, the, in the months and years ahead. So good luck. Uh, we wish you and Fulham well and thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much. Do you like beer? Do you like free beer? As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash footy and cover just the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Choose the light plan. Easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash footy to get your case free, and don't forget, right now, Ornstein and Chapman listeners get two extra free beers. It's been a pretty good few weeks for Manchester City, overturning a ban from European football, getting transfer business done early, and they're now one of the strong favourites to win the Champions League, arguably the favourites uh, ahead of their tie against Lyon at the weekend. Sam Lee is the Athletic City writer and joins us now. Sam, thank you for coming on as ever. Things are looking pretty 
positive at City. This feels like a big moment for the club. And as you say in your piece on The Athletic, they proved a point against Real Madrid in that last match, didn't they? Yeah, I, I always try and avoid these kind of cliches, but they, they did, to be fair. They did, or at least to me anyway. You know, in recent seasons, even last season, I remember they played a game at Schalke and they won it 3-2. They scored two goals right at the end uh, to come back and win. They had three away goals in total. They were obviously going to go through to the quarterfinals, but I just thought that they're too open here. They're not, they're not ready to win it, and it's mm. difficult to write a piece like that, you know, a, a negative piece after a positive result. But I did feel strongly that they weren't ready to win it at that point. Now, having seen the evidence of the second leg, because obviously it was five months after the first, they do seem ready. They do seem more switched on. They proved a point, certainly to me anyway. And now, they, you know, they go to Lisbon and I, I think they can win it. City have already moved early for Nathan Ake and Ferran Torres. We spoke about both of them on this podcast. Pretty typical of City to be pretty efficient. And I'm sure they've still got some, some more targets. The way it's been described to me is that City wanted to do the positions that they needed irrespective of Champions League and and what's to come in the coming weeks, which was a a centre-half, at least one, and uh, the wing replacement or a winger after the departure of Leroy Sané. The positions that they might do now would be subsequent to Champions League outcome, deeper squad planning. Um, We know another centre-half target has been Kalidou Koulibaly. Uh, One interesting thing that I picked up in my conversations on that is that it's complicated by the fact that City and Napoli or City are not keen to die negotiate directly with Napoli because of uh, the animosity between the two that stemmed from uh, the Jorginho transfer which City thought they had lined up and he ended up going to Chelsea and then they've got other positions as well and in recent days the striker situation has come back on the agenda that's something that you've talked about in the past we've talked about a lot about left backs so lots is what I'm I'm saying and and I'll put you on the spot as ever how, how are we looking in the sense of departures and arrivals? Departures is an interesting one now because the Eric Garcia thing has escalated over the end of last week and you know it got to the stage probably a week two weeks ago that it was like okay Barca are interested and he's got a decision to make and so I think when we were putting together that big Nathan Ake piece that you can read on The Athletic um, part of the discussions I had about the plans for next season would be that the the four centre-backs for City would be um, Koulibaly or an alternative if they can't get him Ake Laporte and Garcia or Fernandinho if Fernandinho leaves. Oh, sorry, if, if Garcia leaves. Mm. Um, so can, you could obviously read into that that Artemendi is likely to go as he was likely to go last summer. It didn't happen in the end, but I'm sure they'll get that done now. Um, and the other one, obviously, is John Stones. He posted up something on Instagram, I think it was, uh, on Sunday saying he's looking forward to his future being at City. Now, I'm not sure if there's been a little change of plan behind the scenes and they think, well, he could be the the fourth centre-back now, but um, I don't know. I mean, he's if, if that is the case, he'll have to sign a new contract because mm. he's only got two years left. And obviously, you don't, want, you don't want to be getting into a situation where he's only got one left because that's how they're losing Garcia and that's how they lost Sane. In my understanding is they would have been happy to get rid of him this summer. I'm not sure whether that's changed or not. So that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. Mm. Other than that outgoings, it just seems to be centre-backs and some of the left-backs. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how many of the left-backs, um, at, at least, well, Antelino's already out on loan. I can't imagine he'd be coming back for too long. I wouldn't be surprised. I think Sinchenko can offer a lot, but if they're going to spend a lot of money and they're going to try and recoup some of that money, it would make sense to sell him and, and get some back. I'm not sure about Mendy. As far as I know, as far as I've been told, they've not had any conversations about selling Mendy, but that was 
that was a couple of months ago and it was more kind of the player's side. Maybe things have changed or maybe it wasn't the full story. But as far as outgoings go, I can only really think of centre-backs and left-backs and then they'll, they'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, I wonder if with Mendy, it's more realisation that they can't get bids at the level that they would want for him. Yeah, possibly. well, that's what it was a year ago. Well, yeah. over a year ago, because well, I think as far as I know, they had Chilwell lined up, but then Mendy had... Arthroscopy as well, like the end of April, which is when he was at Barcelona yeah. at the end of the season, and then they were like, "Okay, we can't, we can't sell Mendy, so it can't be done." Um, yeah. So that might be the case now. But even if even if that is the case, and they were to get a left back, having a new first choice left back, and then Mendy's an alternative is is in a pretty strong position going into next season, or at least it's a lot stronger than they've been going into the last couple of seasons anyway. When they've made it work with Delph and Zinchenko, but basically their luck run out on that front this season. Yeah, I think they would be open to selling Zinchenko. We know he nearly moved to Wolves a few years ago and uh, one concern is that they might price him too high. That's an interesting one to watch. Of course, they have an interest in Ben Chilwell, but this uncertainty, the continued participation in the Champions League, the questions about the existing centre-backs makes it look like Chelsea are stealing a march on them in, in that sort of front so it'll be interesting to see how it develops let's bring it back then to the Champions League and specifically Pep Guardiola if City were to win it do you think that will have any bearing on on Pep Guardiola's future or is it just a, a sort of crowning glory and on we go uh, it's it's a really really difficult question because I think we were probably asked this question whether it was on this podcast or on several other conversations I've had after the the cast verdict and I, I think I was well I said at the time the cast verdict isn't going to be the biggest impact. It's going to be at the end of that five years, which will be next summer, um, will Guardiola think that he's still got a squad that's kind of capable and willing to listen to his orders and and go and win more trophies? And maybe then, if he did think that, then he would sign a new deal. Now, how winning the Champions League affects it, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think a lot of people just on the outside speculating that if he did win, he would go and say, well, I've got nothing more to prove. I'm going to leave. I think somebody who kind of who knows him quite well speculated that, not knowing somebody I know who knows him quite well speculated that. But I think that wasn't saying this is what Guardiola is saying. This is what he thinks might happen. But I'm, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that Guardiola wouldn't walk out on the club in a bad moment. So, you know, when people were asking about six months ago and nine months ago, even when there were all the rumours about him leaving, I was saying, I don't think he's going to go. You know, he's, he's loyal to his to his bosses and his friends and all this kind of stuff. And by the same token, I can't see him walking out in a good moment. And knowing City as well, they, they will have plans in place for the next manager. And if it was like a kind of, oh, well, we've won it now, I'm going to leave. And they, for argument's sake, they were lining up, you know, Nagelsmann next summer. It would leave them in a in a difficult position, so I can't see it. I know that I know that's a bit of a popular theory that he might go and have nothing left to prove if he wins it, but um, I don't think so, to be honest. There's a remarkable piece on the Athletic right now that charts the arrival of Robinho. Please go and check it out. Great piece by Danny Taylor. Uh, his signing, Sam, was the start of this project, really, that Manchester City are on now. So um, what did you make of the piece and, and what it tells you about Man City? It just gets the nub of that really because it sounds, you know, it can sound like a throwaway comment to say, oh, he, he was the start of all this. But, you know, he was and this was put across in the article whether people know that and forgot it because it was so long ago and, you know, it, it didn't, the transfer didn't end up going the way they thought or whether they didn't know it at all. It is in the article, you know, there was a part of the contract of the takeover, the Abu Dhabi group takeover said that you know there needed to be a marquee player to go with it you know 
there was no talk of that transfer happening in the morning. You know, the, um, the transfer happened on the same day as a takeover. There was no talk of either thing happening. You know, the article says Mark Hughes was playing golf. Neda Manua talks about, you know, there was, there was no rumblings whatsoever. And the next day he's going into training and knowing that a guy who was really good for Real Madrid is, is going to be his teammate. And there's all that kind of stuff about how kind of the attitude of the club changed overnight. Um, but also, you also get all the other side of it because it wasn't the perfect transfer by any means and it ended quite badly. And you forget how well he started at City because of how he finished. It's all summed up very well in the article. But yeah, it's definitely fair to say that he was the start of all this. Much in the same way, you know, you need a marquee player to get things going. Do you remember when David Beckham went on loan to PSG? You know, you, when when these new projects with a lot of money are getting off the ground, not necessarily as much money as City and PSG have got, but when you're trying to catch headlines, you need you need a signing like this to get a bit of impetus. And while we're plugging City out, of course, I did a Phil Foden piece last week, which I'm very proud yeah. of. It might, it might be yeah. the best thing I've ever written. So Tell please us. check that out as well. Uh, well, I, sp- I spoke to about, I don't know, 10 people, I think, on the record, a fair few others off the record, including some people very close to him, just to get, you know, to kind of tell the whole story of his birth, I think, to to where he is now, how he would practice and improve and how he was naturally gifted and how City coached him and the work he's doing now with a running coach, you know, his attitude, how he, he runs more than everybody else, which we saw the other night. People saying he's, he's a big game player and, and why that might be. Loads of stuff in there. It's a long piece. I, I, I say it's it's more of a, a small book. Than an, art, than an article but um, if you've got time and an athletic subscription it's definitely worthwhile in my humble opinion of course why don't you let our listeners know where they can hear more of your thoughts as well as all of this uh, word salad we've got the Why Always Us podcast which is me and David Mooney and David hosts another podcast so he's very well experienced in that and I'm very well experienced in throwing around a load of ideas on air and reaching a conclusion at the end of it. Um, we've done one this week, kind of looking back on the Real Madrid game, expanding on why I think they're now ready to win it and, you know, those kind of tactical tweaks we mentioned. And, yeah, if anything happens at City, we're kind of ready to jump on and talk it over and take it from there. So, yeah, every week, the Why Always Us podcast, anything to do with City, basically. Um, reaction, thoughts, theories, interviews, it's all there. So if you want to check it out, feel free to do so. And it's free, of course. Yeah, and I suspect City are quite possibly going to be the story over the next few weeks. So um, you will have plenty to talk about, as always. So um, yeah, thanks very much, Sam, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, mate. Hey, everyone. James Richardson here from the Totally Football Show. Listen, 11 months on, we're finally getting to the best bit of this football season because the Champions League and Europa League are about to restart at the sharp end. Last eight knockout tournaments await in Portugal and Germany and we'll be following both competitions with special nightly podcasts every single match day ready for you to download first thing in the morning. So have your breakfast with Honigstein, Horncastle, Cox, Gurionov and all your other totally favourites and me as we wave goodbye to this epic footballing year in style. Our daily Totally Summer Special is available on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. And of course, you can also listen to it ad-free on the Athletic app. Football, by the hell. Well, there was big news from one of the giants of world football over the weekend when Juventus sacked Maurizio Sarri as head coach and replaced him with none other than Andrea Pirlo the legendary former player who was only given the Juve under-23 job last week. Here to make sense of it all is the Athletics Italian football writer James Horncastle. James, welcome. And I guess let's begin by uh, talking about the sacking of Sarri. It felt 
inevitable. I was reading the piece that you wrote on The Athletic uh, in the aftermath of Perlo's appointment and it felt that Sarri was never the quite right fit for Juve despite uh, winning the domestic title. I think that's entirely fair, David. Um, More than a year ago now when he was appointed, I think one of the reasons why it was such a fascinating and daring hire was because he seemed to go against everything uh, that Juventus represented. Um, It was a very countercultural choice in that for Juventus, not just since Andrea Agnelli has been president, but really throughout their entire history, They've really lived by this motto that winning isn't important, it's the only thing that counts. How you win doesn't matter to Juventus. And yet hiring someone like Maurizio Sarri, who has got a very precise playing style, who's always about winning but also convincing in the kind of football that you play, that was what made everyone so curious. They wanted to see if that was possible at Juventus in the way that, say, Arsene Wenger turned Arsenal from 1-0 to the Arsenal to a team that plays the football we all associate with Arsenal today. And it never quite happened. And I think one of the reasons why the sacking was inevitable is because of these incompatibilities. And one of them, and this is why the blame for the dismissal of Maritza Sarri does not lie exclusively with the manager himself, is that the squad, if you look at it, it's not equipped to play the kind of football um, that Maritza Sarri wants to play. And I think that's you know, we'll get to that when we talk about the challenging challenges facing Andrea Pirlo. But for the last fortnight, you can tell that Maurizio Sarri knew this was coming. Um, you know, in, on the night that they won the title, uh, he was asked about his future and he did what all managers who are pessimistic and under pressure do, which is point to the length of his contract and declare his intention to honour it. This would have happened regardless of whether they'd qualified for the, the final eight in Lisbon. I think... Um, the club had taken the temperature of the dressing room um, and had also had been monitoring kind of the, some of the things he'd been saying throughout the year. For example, after the Leon game, the first leg, saying that he was unable to get through to the players. That's never a good sign to hear a manager saying that. And then also to describe the Champions League as a dream uh, when it is a stated objective of Juventus. Um, yeah, He seemed to talk down their chances too often for the liking of the hierarchy and when you, when you sign a player like Cristiano Ronaldo, you can't not um, declare your intention to be uh, one of the Champions League contenders and, and, and that winning it is the number one objective of the season. That really struck me in the piece, the sort of difference in mentality between what sort of Sarri was hoping for and what Juve, the modern Juve now expect, which leads me to think this sort of seduction that, Sarri brings to clubs, Chelsea, Juve, from his time at Empoli and Napoli, what he did, this sort of halcyon vision of how they would like to win and in style might not be a reality for for Sarri and this is perhaps his last chance quite at that very top level. Yeah, um, I think that is going to be a a question mark uh, that hangs over him. You know, I'm pleased for him that after 30 years of working in the game and the first 10 years of that uh, time being part-time because he was working in a bank, uh, that he's risen really from the very bottom and won something in the last two years. Won a European trophy with Chelsea. Uh, won the Scudetto with with Juventus. That felt like the crowning glory for a manager who whose ideas I think deserved uh, recognition and and deserved to 
manifest themselves in, in, in pieces of, of significant silverware. But, you know, I think as became apparent at Chelsea last year and again at Juventus this year, his compatibility with uh, players of a certain level and, and a hierarchy at this level as well, I think it makes it difficult um, to, uh, to anticipate Sarri being given another opportunity among, say, the top eight clubs in Europe in the near future. In your piece, you draw upon some quotes from Sarri pointing out that the executives at Juventus shouldn't be underestimated for their intelligence. They would have had a decision made whether it was to retain him or to get rid of him long before that Champions League match. Equally, you could question why they appointed him if they were so clever and knew how things were going to pan out. And now we can question this romantic decision, really, to uh, replace him with Andrea Pirlo, who, as we said at the top, has only just been appointed the under-23s manager. But it does maybe continue this trend in at the top level of European football of, of going for a former player who can reconnect with the fabric, the DNA of the club, uh, and hope that that will lead them to success in a similar way to Solskjaer at Manchester United, Lampard at Chelsea, Arteta at Arsenal. I think that's really important in understanding why you've chose Andrea Pirlo um, is because you know in the three years that he spent there as a player there's so much mutual respect um, both from Pirlo and Andrea Agnelli the president and the two guys flanking Agnelli Pavel Nedved the vice president and also Fabio Paratici the chief football officer because Pirlo was the player that made Juventus a force again and you know he looks back at them for and is thankful that they gave him a chance at a time when AC Milan basically said, we think you're over the hill, we think, you've, we think you're done. And that is why Juventus and Pirlo, this bond has become so strong, even though he spent so much more time of his career with AC Milan. Now, I'm yet to see um, anything from Pirlo to suggest that he is uh, a great manager in the making, um, because... Yeah, he's only just finished his coaching badges. He hasn't taken a professional training session yet as a coach um, because the under-23s hadn't come back for pre-season yet. But I think he must be seen in this wider context at Juventus that they are trying to get younger. Yeah, they've tried to get younger at board level um, in recent years, bringing on people from Spotify. You look at the people that Agnelli's promoted around him. They ousted the chief executive who, for the first seven years of this run, was really significant, a guy called Giuseppe Marotta, who's now at Inter with Antonio Conte, because Agnelli wants fresh ideas. And I think Pirlo fits into that as well, that just as we're recruiting and seeing players start their careers younger, um, yeah, the number of players now who are 16, 17 and yeah, already established names, on the uh, on the European scene, I think we're seeing that with managers um, as well now, and I think Pirlo fits that brief. It's going to be very intriguing to see uh, whether he can overcome some of the structural challenges within the team that, in some respects, made it too tough a job for even Sarri to be a success in. Cynics might point out that Ronaldo truly runs <laughs> this team in a way that Messi runs the Barcelona team. Uh, one bit of information I had was that Maurizio Pochettino was asking for too much money, yeah. uh, something in the region of 10 million euros net, and that actually at a time when Juventus's finances are... Uh, pretty tight uh, that wouldn't have been realistic what would you make of Pochettino and others who might have been in a frame could that have been a contributing factor to Pirlo's appointment yes and yeah I heard that they had uh, made contact with with Pochettino Pochettino has often been linked 
with Juventus in the last couple of years. And what I was told was that when he was at Spurs, he was not a priority for them. He was not of immediate interest because they recognised that getting him out of there was going to be challenging and very expensive. But likewise, as you've just outlined there, David, the kind of wages that he would expect, the only coach who earns more than that at the moment in Serie A is Antonio Conte. He earns far more than what Maurizio Sarri was earning, for example. And Juventus have also been paying Massimiliano Allegri, um, the guy that um, replaced Sarri um, over the last year, out of gratitude for the, what he achieved. So there, are, I think there are only there was only one other name that uh, Juventus were looking at uh, when making this decision, and that was uh, Lazio's coach Simone Inzaghi, who Fabio Paratici, the chief football officer, goes way back with. Um, Agnelli has known Simone Inzaghi for a long time because of the time, for example, that they had his brother Pippo Inzaghi on the team, and they really like what he has done on very little budget at Lazio, and um, they think he is one of the next top managers, but. He had a year left on his contract and was unavailable. And they believe in Andrea Pirlo. And I, I think the other thing is it's just expedience, David, in that Juventus will be back for pre-season in two weeks' time. <laughs> so they didn't have a lot of time to make this decision. They had to act swiftly. And, and Pirlo was there. They'd been very impressed by the presentation that he gave to the club when they appointed him as the, the under-23 coach. They believe he's got the makings of uh, to, to be a very a very good manager, and he'll have the backing of the the veterans in the dressing room, who are still Gianluigi Buffon, Chiellini, Leonardo Bonucci. From how it's been described to me, the relationship that Cristiano Ronaldo had with Maurizio Sarri was a little bit similar to what he had with Rafa Benitez at Real Madrid, in that he will listen more to someone who is on his own level as a, well on his own level as a player. You're right, they have to listen, Juventus have to listen to Cristiano, uh, David, when it comes to what he feels the need, to, the, the team needs and what they need to do to keep him happy. Um, because it's clear that yeah, he did not expect to go from winning the Champions League three years in a row as he did in his final three years at Real Madrid to going out in the quarterfinals last year and the round of 16 this year when he's scored all of their goals in the knockout stages in that time. He wants to win the competition again. Yeah, and you suspect those relationships and that respect may buy Pirlo some time, but he has to do well, as you've explained. And to do well, they will probably need to invest somewhat in the squad. I know there's some huge activity going on behind the scenes at, at Juve to try and structure some ins and outs. They've got some defenders who are surplus, um, Christian Romero, who... Uh, I think has been alone at Genoa uh, is one that is well known within the game that they'd like to move on. Um, there've been some suggestions that Douglas Costa could be a backup option for Manchester United. If they don't get Jadon Sancho this summer, we've already seen a deal done in their midfield. I know there is an element of interest from them in Alexander Lacazette from Arsenal, who Arsenal, I think would be willing to do a deal for at the right price or in some kind of swap. So lots and lots going on behind the scenes there. And as you say, in a very, condensed period of time what sort of money will they have to spend because from what I hear it's it's very tight there at the moment it is very tight Paratici has been saying that they need to be creative they need to be elastic in the uh, in the transfer window this summer they have been trying to do a lot of trades um, you know as we've seen with Miralem Pjanic going to Barcelona and Artur coming uh, this the other way for for more or less the same amount of money liquidity it's not a problem for them but it's it's tighter than it was a couple of years ago and they've got a very big squad 
and how it's been put to me, David, from from various agents who've worked with him or work with him at the moment is, is that a lot of the guys there don't want to leave because they're being paid big money. Um, the likes of Sami Khedira. Um, yeah, this was the case with Mario Mandzukic last year, Paolo Dybala too in that. Yeah, Juventus have, have gone from being, as Andrea Agnelli called them, when they, they had Paul Pogba in his second year, they were a stepping stone club then to a Manchester United, to a Real Madrid, to a Barcelona, because the wealth gap in terms of revenue is so great. They're not anymore. They're a destination. And and players, it's it's hard to basically tell players it's time to move on. And I think that's been the most surprising thing of, of reporting on Juventus in the last three transfer windows going back to last summer the kind of scramble to sell some players um yeah i think that was that was really indicative um of what they were doing with dibala and higuain last year you know higuain who will be going into the final year of his contract mm. and i think as with kadira they'll they'll look to get a sale but they it's been very difficult for them and they might have to come to some sort of a settlement. It's going to be really interesting to follow what they do between now and, and the beginning of October when the window closes. Yeah, and we didn't even mention Aaron Ramsey, who's been linked with moves. You've written about him. Um, as I understand it, he, he's very keen to stay and, and and I'm sure he'd like to work under the new manager. He gets paid a lot, so that would be an, another issue as well if they wanted to move him on. But there's so, so much to be decided in a short space of time. I guess I'll finish with a bit of a scene setter, a bit of a preview for the new season as a sort of outsider like me looking at Serie A I wonder if Juventus have got greater competition than ever before we look at Milan rising uh, Atalanta Roma Napoli and they've made a, an impressive move for Ossiman from uh, Lille Lazio there as well how are you assessing things I haven't even mentioned Inter um, <laughs> who have got some exciting options too I think Inter uh, will be the biggest competition that Juventus face I think one of the reasons Conte has been so frustrated this season is he could see that Juventus were there for the taking I think he's disappointed with himself um, and by the same token, the club that after the investment that they made last summer, breaking their transfer record twice for Lukaku, for Barella, then getting Ericsson in January when, you know, a day after the January transfer window closed, they could have arranged to sign Ericsson for free rather than sign him for, for 20 million. But he would obviously come to start this season. I think Atalanta is still a team to look out for um, in the title race, even though... Uh, they don't have the same sort of budget as the as the top clubs because they've got continuity. Um, and I, I think that really matters um, at this level. They're not changing their manager as Juventus have had done um, every year since Cristiano Ronaldo's been at the club. But I think the league is turning a corner and we've got a... We've got an interview coming out this week with uh, the president of the league, Paolo Del Pino, about um, some of the plans to get private equity to invest in the in the league, um, stadium reform, all these kind of things that will help City A bring in more money, which will attract more investment, attract better players, um, and I think that will make the league more competitive as well. And I think. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why it's, it feels quite exciting again. Yeah, you can read that interview later this week over on The Athletic. James, thank you very much for your time. Grazie mille and ciao. We'll speak to you soon. <laughs> A presto. <laughs> Right, that's it. Thanks for listening and do let us know what you think by leaving a comment and a rating wherever you are listening to us. We'll be back next week.